Welcome to the Best of Making Sense. This is Sam Harris. In this series, we re-air some of the most popular episodes of the Making Sense podcast. These are conversations that we think you'll find just as relevant today as when they were originally released. Today I'm speaking with Michael Sandel. Michael teaches political philosophy at Harvard University, where he teaches the quite famous course on justice that has been televised and viewed by tens of millions of people. And he's the author of several books, the most recent of which is The Tyranny of Merit, What's Become of the Common Good. And that is our focus in today's episode. We talk about the ethics of success and failure in our society, the enduring problems with capitalism, how college has become a sorting mechanism for a new kind of caste system. We cover what I have come to think of as the pernicious myth of the self-made man. And we discuss the paradoxes which come from valuing excellence, all the while recognizing the role that luck plays in producing it. It's a very timely conversation as we struggle really throughout Western society to deal with the politics of humiliation and injustice and the rising levels of wealth inequality to which they are anchored. Clearly, we're going to have to get a handle on this sooner rather than later. And now I bring you Michael Sandel. I am here with Michael Sandel. Michael, thanks for joining me. Good to be with you, Sam. So, uh, you know, I will have properly introduced you here, but um, give me your short-form bio. You're a man of many honors and talents, but uh, how do you describe yourself in an elevator with a stranger? I teach political philosophy. Well, you have, you have a new book, The Tyranny of Merit, What's Become of the Common Good, which um, I want to focus on, but um, another colorful fact about you, which I only just learned, was that in 1971, at the age of 18, you debated uh, Ronald Reagan when he was the governor of California. That had to be amusing. But I also recall that you and I once debated, I think I probably got the more seasoned Michael Sandel, somewhere around, I think it was 2005. Do you recall that? We, we met at uh, either Pomona or you know, Harvey Mudd College? Yes, I do. So, uh, so we, we've met once, and, and I remember that being quite a um, collegial and amicable debate on, uh, oh, it surely must have been on religion at that point. I think that's right. Yeah. I think it was about the, the role of religion in public life, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. Well, nice to meet you, uh, at, albeit at some distance here, on a new topic. And it's a topic that I think we substantially agree on, although I must say there's something so counterintuitive about yeah. a criticism of meritocracy it makes the topic itself surprisingly elusive. I mean, once you think you have the thesis in hand and you agree with it, it's almost like you wake up and can no longer find your purchase on the felt sense of the argument anymore because there's just something so ingrained about this notion that the, the only flaw in meritocracy, which is to say, you know, truly valuing differences in competence and excellence and rewarding people along, along that continuum, is that we, the flaw is generally thought and felt to be that we haven't achieved it. Right. We don't have a fair society with real, anything like equality of opportunity, but if only we could give everyone the opportunity they deserve, well then, what could be wrong with just letting people rise or fall based on their own merits. Right. Let's start there. How do you think about this notion of meritocracy at this point? Well, you're right, Sam. It is a counterintuitive idea, because merit on the face of it is a good thing, even an ideal. What could be wrong with trying to assign people to social roles and to jobs based on their merits rather than based on arbitrary factors or the accidents of their birth or whom they know, connections, and so on. And if I need a, a surgeon, if I need surgery, I certainly want a well-qualified surgeon to perform it, not someone who's poorly qualified. So on the face of it, 
merit seems an unqualified good. And yet, when merit comes to be a governing philosophy, a way of determining access to opportunities, it has a dark side. And the book tries to bring out this paradoxical feature of merit. I would put it this way. If we had a perfect meritocracy, if we could one day overcome all of the obstacles that hold people back, all of the prejudices, wouldn't that be a good thing? Well, it would have this feature that the winners of the race, this fair race, would believe, understandably, that they deserved their winnings, provided the races run fairly, and that the losers deserved whatever place they wound up in. And here, when we think about a society and an economy and a democracy, here's where the flaw in the ideal arises. First, it's a good thing to bring everyone up to the same starting point in the race. But if we could, it would be predictable that the fastest, most gifted runners would win and would believe they deserved all of the benefits and the material rewards and the honors that the society bestows upon them. But a question, one question could be asked is, do we deserve in the first place the talents, the gifts that enable us to flourish in a, in a market society like ours? Or is having those talents a matter of good luck? Take, for example, make it concrete. LeBron James, he's a great basketball player, just helped lead the Lakers to the NBA championship. He works hard to cultivate his great athletic talents, but does he really deserve those talents and all the benefits that flows from them? Or is having those talents, certainly it's not his doing that he's gifted in that way, is that his good luck? But more than that, Sam, it's it, the fact that he lives in a society that loves basketball, that too is hardly his doing. If he lived back in the Renaissance, they didn't care much for basketball then. Hmm. And uh, they, they preferred fresco painters. So that too is a matter of contingency and good luck. So for these two reasons, it's a mistake for the successful to assume that their success is the measure of their merit and that they therefore deserve all of the benefits that flow from the exercise of their talents. And here's where the dark side of it comes in, especially when we think about our current society and our politics. As the successful come to believe that their success is their own doing, a measure of their merit, they tend to inhale too deeply of their own success. They forget the luck and good fortune that helped them on their way, and they tend to look down on those less fortunate than themselves, believing that their failure is their fault. And I think mm. this, this hubris among the, the successful, meritocratic hubris, I call it, and the humiliation, the demoralization among those left behind accounts for some of the resentments that have gathered in recent decades against elites, resentments that we saw bubble up and find expression in the populist backlash of 2016. So there's a lot here. So there, there's the kind of the ethical case, and then there, there are the political ramifications of right. getting that right or wrong here. And so yeah. I mean, you've just sketched that in brief, and your, and your book really goes deeply into it. That we have this sense among the successful, certainly, that they desperately want to believe that their success is morally justified. Right. There's this notion of justified advantage, which just by the very you know, logical nature of the claim, begets this notion of justified disadvantage, right? The people who are right. not winners, i.e. the people who are losing to one or another degree, also deserve their lot in life. And right. this leads to a kind of 
you know, resentment and populist anger that we've seen and, and the attendant politics of personality and Trumpism, and also this now pervasive and totally destabilizing distrust of institutions and expertise. Now we're, we're living in a kind of shattering of our public conversation about basic facts because so-called elites are despised to the degree that they are in the media and in academia and various institutions. And, I, and I'm quite sympathetic with much of this criticism because the elites have played their side of this terribly. And maybe we'll touch on some of those specifics. But before we get into the politics of all this, let's linger on the, the ethical case because I totally agree that we should view differences in, in success in general as a kind of you know, multivariate lottery that's being run. You know, it's, it's not just mm -hmm. a matter of the normal forms of good luck. Everything can be ascribed to luck in the end. I mean, you, you know, you, you, down to your genes and all that they do to determine who you are and down to the environment and all that it does in concert with your genes to determine who you are. I mean, no one made themselves. No one created the society into which they were born. Take the perfect example of someone like LeBron James. He neither created his physical attributes that allow him to succeed as a basketball player, nor did he create the world in which basketball would be valued or even deemed interesting. And so he has won a kind of lottery, and yet there does still seem to be this problem in how we deal with differences in ability that we value and will inevitably value. Because you take something like basketball. I mean, if you value basketball, if you enjoy watching the sport, almost by definition, you will value the far end of the continuum of the bell curve of basketball talent more than you'll, you'll value the mean, right? And so no one wants an NBA where everyone gets a chance to play and everyone gets a trophy at the end of the, the season. I mean, that annihilates the principles by which one, it would even capture your attention, you know, as a sport. If you could wave a magic wand and reset all of our, our ethical and attentional dials here, just what would be our experience? Take the limited case of basketball, you know, thinking about basketball, valuing basketball, buying tickets, and rewarding the obvious merits of a player like LeBron James. If I were recruiting a basketball, an NBA team, I would still go, Sam, for the best players. I would. I would want LeBron James. I would want the best players. So that's not really the, the question. The question is what moral desert we attribute to those who enjoy material rewards as well as honorific rewards for excelling in this or that way. So in, in the narrowly contained realm of basketball, the, the hiring practice wouldn't be different. The recruiting practice wouldn't be different. But when we look at the society as a whole, and when we look at social roles, and when we look at who gets to govern, and who gets to have the greatest voice, and who makes the most money, there's the tendency to assume, let's take the economy, there's a tendency to assume that the money people make is the measure of their contribution to the common good. But this is a mistake because there are all sorts of contingencies that determine who makes a lot of money and who makes less, contingencies that are in no way related to differential contributions to the common good. And when we ask about who governs us, we want, in broad terms, here's the basketball analogy, we want to be governed by the people who are best at governing. Or in a representative democracy, we want to be represented by those who, who are best at that role. But today, essentially, we, we are governed by only a segment of the population, those who have managed to get four-year university degrees, overwhelmingly in democracies in the U.S. and, and uh, in Europe. Parliaments and executive branches are dominated by, 
overwhelmingly by those who have university degrees, even though those of us who have such degrees represent a minority of, of our fellow citizens. Most, most people don't have a four-year university degree. Nearly two-thirds do not in the United States and in Europe. So if we're talking about governing, this touches, too, on your point about expertise, Sam, and the, mm. and the backlash against elites and experts. I think that the, the, we've confused talking about merit and governing. We've confused the virtues necessary to govern well in a democratic society with technocratic expertise. And, but that's distorting. That's much too narrow. So in many of the domains, once we get outside of basketball, the problem is that we have woefully misconstrued what counts as the relevant merits. So that's why the basketball illustration is helpful up to a point. Mm. But when it comes to distributing economic rewards and when it comes to governing, what we tend to regard as merit actually misses the mark by quite a long way. Okay, so I think it's helpful to grab the ethical side of this before we talk about just descriptively what's happening at the level of our politics and, and society at large. So I hear in part of this criticism, a criticism of the notion that there's any direct causal connection between wealth and value creation. The cartoon version of you know, blameless wealth that one would get in a libertarian circles, you know, perhaps above all, right. this notion that the only way someone becomes spectacularly wealthy is to create a commensurate amount of value for the world. I mean, that is, that is how a free market would reward, you know, human excellence and value creation. And the, the way that gets deranged, I mean, obviously there, you know, we don't live in the, in the cartoon there are ways this, this is not reflective of reality. But I, I think there is a core truth to it, right? Now, you, you might say that we value the wrong things, right? So someone can open an Instagram account and flaunt their body, and if they're young and, and beautiful, they'll have millions of people following them, or at least some of them will, and they may be able to leverage that into vast wealth, as have um, the Kardashians. It's not to say it's, the, it's the only, their only assets, but there's no question they are being rewarded by some notion of, if not value, created for society. It's the capturing of, of attention. There is a, a machinery here that is working based on what people, the choices people are making and the resulting effects in the market, and money is flowing in what is deemed to be the right direction. That's a case where we, I think we might say, Okay, well, people are just valuing the wrong things, and other people are becoming amazingly wealthy based on this distortion in priorities. But then when you have something, you, you have someone else who's become immensely wealthy by a purely creative act that has just brought nothing but joy to the world. I mean, someone like J.K. Rowling, she writes her books, people line up at you know, midnight to buy them in, in, in front of bookstores all over this world. That was a fairly pure register of the value being created, and she became you know, among the, the wealthiest writers in history as a result. What are you suggesting could change about our current system with reference to someone like J.K. Rowling? I mean, shouldn't we reward her in precisely the way, the way we have and esteem her in, in the way that we do based on her creative output? Well, there are two reasons that the answer might be yes, that we should reward her in the way we do, though it's important that you drew this distinction just at the end of the question, Sam, between rewarding her monetarily and rewarding her with esteem. And the answer may be different in the two cases. But the, the, if she is providing something that is valued and that is worthy of being valued, then she should be rewarded, certainly with esteem, for having done that. 
Now, but there are two reasons we might want to reward her. One is to encourage her and people with creative gifts like hers to continue to exercise them by writing books that we love to read or our children love to read. That's a reason, that reason has to do with providing an incentive to her and others like her to continue doing what they're doing because we, we like the stories that, that she writes. But it's important to notice that that reason, the incentive reason, has nothing necessarily to do with whether or not she morally deserves all the money she makes writing Harry Potter stories. That's a further question. And so the second question is, should we reward her in the sense that not only does, does she get a lot of money for selling a lot of Harry Potter books, but we also consider that she morally deserves the money that she makes, thanks to the market success of the books. And that's the further question. That's a, that's a harder case to make. Mm. Now, this is why your mention of esteem matters. We might decide that she deserves esteem for having written beautiful and compelling Harry Potter stories. And yet it could very well be a further question whether she should make 10 times more than other writers or people in other professions, or 100 times more, or 1,000 times more, or 10,000 times more. It's, it's hard to claim that as a matter of moral desert, she deserves to make X times more, that where X is in proportion to her actual earnings relative to other people. Whereas it, I think it's easier to say she's certainly worthy of admiration for the creativity she brought to bear writing these stories. If I could just add, I think you put it very well when you said part of the objection is that we value the wrong things. Part of the objection to assuming that the money people make is the measure of their contribution to the common good. Mm. It's important to keep hold of this question because it's a question that, that the free market libertarians you mentioned beg. They ignore. But here's a simple, concrete example to test it. I don't know, Sam, if you were a fan of Breaking Bad, oh, Walter yeah. White. Yeah. So, uh, Walter White started out as a high school chemistry teacher. And he didn't make much money. He had to work when he wasn't teaching at a second job at a car wash. And then, as we know, he broke bad and became a meth dealer. He, he used his talents as a chemist to make perfect methamphetamine and made millions and millions selling this methamphetamine because there was a great market demand for it. So here would be the test for the the, the pure idealistic free market libertarian. Assuming there were a competitive market in high school chemistry teachers and in meth cooks, and Walter White made thousands of times more cooking and selling meth than teaching high school chemistry, would we conclude from that that his contribution as a meth dealer was thousands of times greater, more important than his contributions as a high school chemistry teacher? Probably not. It'd be pretty hard to make that claim. So part of what I'm suggesting is that really to understand the, the question of merit when we're talking about the economy and economic rewards, we have to, uh, we have to address the question about whether we are valuing the right kinds of things in, in the design of markets and in the allocation of rewards. There's so many things that distort this notion of value, or a notion that there's, there's a linear relationship between the value being created by someone's efforts and their monetary rewards or their rewards in, in, with respect to esteem. I mean, you just take the case of you know, someone who's saving your life. You're having a heart attack. 
you know, the paramedic shows up and saves your life, well, in that moment, this is the, you know, the most valuable job on earth for you, right? But that doesn't suggest that we could have a society that paid paramedics $20 million a year for working their trade, right? Because it's, it's more of a trade than, you know, finding the, the outlier in the NBA can be thought of as a trade, or, you know, the outlier with respect to writing novels. I don't see how we get away from this seemingly crazy outsized reward structure for the, the people who are on the, the far tail of the continuum for things we, we value, what, you know, rightly or wrongly. There is this larger criticism we could explore around you know, a society that, that is just captivated by the wrong things. And that's a much longer conversation that will, will outlive both of us. How do we want the things we should want? In the end, how do we live lives, you know, all together uh, that we won't regret? That in in hindsight will seem sane. And how do we avoid, you know, just colossal wastages of time and opportunity collectively? But in a world where people can freely spend their time, attention, and money on things they want, and in a system that maximally incentivizes a creative and, you know, hopefully ethical response to those wants, right? I mean, if we want to be able to give everyone at all times what they want, what they really want, as quickly and as efficiently as possible, something like capitalism seems like the best answer we've ever arrived at. And something like global technocratic capitalism is where we've landed. And again, the, we can point out flaws in this. I mean, there, there are you know, obviously negative externalities to various business practices that you know, free markets don't account for, and we want some kind of regulation, you know, environmental and otherwise. But it's hard to see that you know, if you are going to be writing novels that are so creative that people want to open theme parks in order to explore the consequences of your ideas, right? And people by the tens of thousands show up at those theme parks every year to buy the merchandise that is derivative of your of your ideas other than just deciding that someone like J.K. Rowling needs to pay more in taxes uh, that we should have something like a wealth tax or some a tax that's so progressive that you know very very wealthy people pay the preponderance of their wealth back into the system if we just had our tax codes straightened out wouldn't that be a sufficient remedy for this particular lottery problem? Well, that certainly would be one way of responding to it by considering a revamping of the tax system. A wealth tax would be one possible way of dealing with this. But I would also say, if we're thinking now practically and moving into the world in which we live, I think we should have a public debate about whether it's fair or desirable to tax earnings from labor the work people do in the real economy at a higher rate than earnings from interest, dividends, and mm -hmm. capital gains. Why should we tax workers at a higher rate than, than investors from the standpoint of, of merit or desert and contribution to the common good? A more dramatic example of this, Sam, would be, uh, I think we should have a debate about whether to trade off the uh, all are part of the payroll tax, which, after all, is a tax on labor paid partly by the worker and partly by the company, and make up that lost revenue through a financial transactions tax, or at least one on speculative financial activity unrelated to improving the real economy or high-speed trading. The actual way in which enormous income and wealth is generated. The, the, the uh, characteristic way is not the J.K. Rowling way mm. or even the LeBron James way. It's to do with, for looking at broader trends over recent decades, the financialization of the economy. We see this in the U.S. and Britain, which is the tendency of a greater share of economic activity of GDP and, and especially of corporate profits accounted for 
by financial activity rather than providing goods and services that people use. Now, there'd be nothing wrong with this or with the outsized rewards that people in the financial industry reap if that increased financial activity corresponded to a productive contribution to the real economy. But increasingly, the financial activity that has exploded in recent decades, especially with financial deregulation in recent decades, contributes little, if anything, to the real economy. Hmm. The, the social purpose of finance is to allocate capital to productive activities, new businesses, enterprises, factories, homes, schools, hospitals, roads, and so on, in the real economy. But most financial activity in advanced financial systems, such as the U.S. and the U.K., is not of that productive kind. It's been estimated by no, those who know more about it than I do that only about 15% of financial activity consists in investment in new productive assets for the economy. 85% consists of simply bidding up the price or, or betting on the future prices of already existing assets or increasingly synthetically created derivatives and other fancy financial instruments that have precious little to do with making the economy more productive. Mm. So in some ways, the standard defense of a laissez-faire free market distribution of income and wealth drawing on J.K. Rowling or on LeBron James misses what's actually going on for the most part with the, uh, with the growing inequality in, in our economy. And so in debating the tax system, I think we should, we should confront that directly. Hence, mm. I would suggest, in addition to a wealth tax, a, a financial transactions tax to offset, to enable us to reduce taxes on work in the ordinary sense. Now, if I could just add one more thing about this, Sam. Yep. This isn't only for the sake of redistributing income from the wealthy to those who need it more, though that would be one advantage. It's also to prompt a broader public debate about the earlier topic we were discussing, which is whether the purpose of an economy is to help shape the way we value different contributions to the economy and the society, or whether the point of the economy is simply to accept whatever valuations seem to be implicit in the existing system. Hmm. And I'm, I'm hoping by these and other proposals to prompt a broader public debate onto the terrain that you said, rightly, is contestable and, and we could be debating about for a very long time. What does it mean to value the right kinds of things? What does it mean to, to encourage certain contributions to the common good and to discourage others? I think that should be a part of our public debate. And one way of making it a part of our public debate is to raise questions, for example, about the role of speculative finance by comparison with the productive contribution of people who produce valuable goods and service, truly valuable mm. goods and services. Yeah, well, that, that's a, obviously a very important distinction. I mean, there, there's so many areas of the economy where if we could be fully transparent as to the contributions being made by that economic activity, we would want to rethink, you know, how, what we're incentivizing and how we're rewarding people because there, there's so much rent-seeking behavior and there's just so much administrative bloat in you know, the whole sectors of our economy are suffocating under this apparatus we put in place. And we take the, the medical system and just what, you know, just how much time doctors have to spend dealing with insurance companies. We spend more on medicine than any society on right. earth, and we do not get the return on our investment. So yeah, I, I, there's a lot to straighten out there. But even even the pure case is hard to think about and, and puts us up against certain moral paradoxes. So, for instance, j just imagine a society where we had decided, okay, we, we've gotten past this, this notion of, of mere 
equal opportunity because we know that even if we could open the doors perfectly and give every child starting right now an equal opportunity to get into Harvard, say, well, there'll still be mass, massive differences in their ability to avail themselves of those opportunities because of all of these other disadvantages. But the, the paradox here is that the thing that's under our control, the environment, if we perfectly tuned that, if we gave everyone from utero onward all of the same environmental benefits, right? This is magic, right? We can't, we obviously can't do this, but even if we could, where that would land us is in this dystopian counterfactual world where now what we'll have to spectate on are the, the massive differences in genetic endowment, right? I mean, you, if you perfectly secure the environment against disadvantage, well, then all you will see is a, a kind of tyranny of genetic differences uh, and will be in some kind of Gattaca-like dystopia. And that would be if, with the best of intentions, we could create perfectly equitable and enriched environments for everybody. You can take that case and do with what, it, what you will with it. It almost seems like a, a kind of mirage here to figure out how to actually solve this problem given a perfect ability to do so. Well, I think, I think what, the, what the mirage-like feel of this thought experiment brings out is that even a perfect meritocracy would not be a just society because the winners would still be determined by factors that were not their own doing. And yet, to make matters worse, the closer we came to providing truly equal opportunity, the greater the tendency for the successful to believe that their success was their own doing, the greater the tendency to forget or to overlook or deny the luck and good fortune that helped them on their way, and the greater the tendency to look down on those who are flourishing less and to say their failure must be their fault. So what goes along with the meritocratic picture is a sense of human agency so thoroughgoing that we tend to attribute moral responsibility for one's fate, for where one lands in life, notwithstanding the persistent contingencies that you've just described and that we've been discussing. The attitudes towards success and failure, toward winning and losing, as we, became, as we approached more closely perfect equality of opportunity, those attitudes towards success and failure would become all the sharper, all the more pronounced. And what I'm suggesting is, from an ethical point of view, and you've rightly invited us to distinguish the ethical from the political dimensions of this, ethically, the, the hubris leads those on top to forget not only the luck and good fortune, but also their sense of indebtedness and uh, as well as looking down on those less fortunate than themselves. Mm. So that's the ethical problem. That's the dark side of meritocracy, morally speaking. It's the hubris rather than the more we appreciate, the more we would be alive to the, the role of accident and luck and fortune, the more open would, we would be toward a certain humility toward a success, toward winning. And this openness to humility can open us also to a greater sense of responsibility for those less fortunate than us, those who struggle, those who, who may be left behind through no fault of their own. So that's the ethical side of it. Mm. But politically, even though we haven't realized the perfect meritocracy that you've just described and that we've been uh, imagining, it has so, this ideal, this picture has so dominated public discourse that it has shaped the response to the deepening inequality of the last four decades. And I think it's no accident that 
meritocratic modes of public discourse and moral argument have strengthened their hold at the very same time that inequalities of income and wealth have deepened with the kind of market-driven globalization we've had in recent decades. And this has fueled the, the anger, the resentment of those who have lost out. It's one thing to, to feel that you've lost out because the system is unfair, the system is rigged. That's a worry about fairness. But humiliation is a deeper kind of demoralization because it's a system where the, the attitudes towards success and failure lead those who struggle to believe, well, maybe I don't work hard enough. Maybe I'm not talented enough to land where they landed. That's deeply demoralizing. And maybe that's why they're looking down on me. One of the most potent sources, Sam, I think of the populist backlash that we've seen most dramatically uh, in 2016, is the sense among many working people that elites look down on them. And this has a specific meaning in the context of American politics, because for four decades, the meritocratic promise was, yes, there may be deepening inequality, but you can rise. Everyone can rise through individual effort and training, provided you go to college, then you too can compete and win in the global economy. What you earn will depend on what you learn. So the response, and this includes Democrats and Republicans, the response to the deepening inequality was to offer individual upward mobility through higher education, which on the face of it seems inspiring. I'm all for improving access to, widening access to higher education. But as a remedy for the inequality that we've seen, it's a pale, inadequate solution. And it contains what seems an inspiring message, you too can rise if only you go to college, contains an insult, an implicit insult. And the insult is this, if you don't have a university degree and you're struggling in the new economy, your failure must be your fault. And this politically is folly when we recall that most, most people don't have a four-year college degree. So instead of focusing on arming people for meritocratic competition, I think we should be focusing more on affirming the dignity of work and having a public debate about what it would mean truly to enable everyone to flourish whether they're in blue-collar jobs or whether they're in, in well, whether they're well-credentialed people in professional jobs. Yeah. So let's focus on the problem of college because this is, in some measure, the whole problem in microcosm. But it's also the the longest lever that has separated the fates of winners and losers in in our society. I mean, college. You know, on your account. Other people have, have hit this topic. Uh, Daniel Markovitz was on the podcast a couple months ago. Yeah. yeah. I mean, college has become a kind of sorting mechanism for a new caste system in our society. And again, as you point out, this is not just a problem with you know, one party or the other. I mean, this comes from, from everywhere that this is the way you will successfully compete in this increasingly global state of economic nature. And it's not only something that is offered more or less to everyone, and, and everyone who will claim the opportunity can sort of get it in hand, but there's something you know, generally fair about how all of this shakes down. Because, of course, the elites, right, the best of the best in any field, will wind up and should wind up at the best universities. Because how else would the best universities select? their student body. And if they, you know, if this gets gamed occasionally and occasionally perversely with people buying their way in, there's a probrium attached to that. But in the general case, it's hard to even optimize that because these schools are you know, fantastically expensive to run. And, if, and, you know, if you're not going to give alumni any, any advantage, well, then why would they be 
donating year after year to the, you know, to Harvard's endowment, right? So it's there's something that while it's not ideal, many people look at this and think, well, how else could it be? So I ask you, you know, in our closing chapter here, what is the problem with college and, and how should we fix it? The main problem with college is that we, and by we I mean the society as a whole, not just the higher education community, we have made colleges and universities the arbiters of opportunity in a meritocratic society. They are the institutions that confer the credentials and that define the merit that get rewarded in the moral economy we've created. Now, on the face of it, this seems like an appropriate role to assign higher education. And yet, it's not only that this is occasionally uh, gamed, as you put it. I mean, the, the college admissions scandal provided a vivid, mm -hmm. lurid example of affluent parents and celebrities trying to game the system in a, fraud, in a massive fraud scheme. Put that aside. Even put aside for the moment the legacy uh, admissions that you know, give an advantage to children of the alumni that you mentioned, Sam. Mm -hmm. But even the SAT and the other forms of credentials that colleges and universities use are highly skewed toward the affluent. Even with generous financial aid policies at Ivy League universities, there are more students from the top 1% of the income scale than there are from the entire bottom half of the country combined. Not only that, because these institutions are so highly skewed, they do not function as the engines of individual upward mobility that we often assume they are. Some economists did a study to find out how often it's the case that a student at places such as Ivy League universities or top, you know, selective colleges arrive from poor families and make it to the top 20%. It's around 1.5 to 2% of students at these colleges and universities make that ascent. This is not because students who come poor don't find their prospects dramatically increased. It's that there are so few, few poor students, uh, or even students from the bottom half of the income scale, at these institutions to begin with. Yeah. So they function like an elevator in a building that most people enter on the top floor. So what should we do about it? Well, I think we should call into question whether we want to make higher education, especially these brand-name colleges and universities, the arbiters of opportunity. We woefully underinvest in the forms of learning that most Americans depend on to prepare themselves for the world of work and to contribute to their society. I'm thinking of state colleges two-year community colleges, vocational and technical training programs. We woefully underinvest in terms of money, and we have such a sharply skewed hierarchy of esteem between the brand-name four-year universities and colleges and these other forms of learning. I think we should change that, both in terms of investment and in terms of honor and recognition. It doesn't have to be this way. It's not this way in Germany, for example, where they have a long tradition of investing in forms of learning that working people uh, avail themselves of. And there, there is a different distribution of honor and esteem connected to that. So that would be one broad change that I think we should make. And beyond that, I would say this about the problem of turning universities into sorting machines. It's not good for us, and by us I mean those of us who are in higher education, because the growing emphasis on 
our credentializing function, our sorting function, is beginning to crowd out the educational mission itself. Our students are so distracted and pressured and attuned to jumping hoops and gathering credentials and networking and competing and applying for stuff by the time they arrive that there is less and less space to step back and reflect as a liberal arts education requires students to, or at least invites students to reflect on what's worth caring about, on what subjects they really care to pursue, discovering their passions, figuring out what's worth valuing, to go back to the earlier part of our conversation, Sam. So I think the tyranny of merit exerts itself with a kind, it oppresses not only those who, on those who are excluded and looked down upon, the tyranny of merit also oppresses the winners who, through their high school years, and here I'm talking about those competing for admission to these places, their high school years are turned into a high-stress, highly pressured meritocratic gauntlet of assembling credentials and competing for grades and going to SAT prep tutors and assembling extracurricular activities and doing good works in distant places, often supervised, in the case of affluent uh, families, by these private college consultants who tell them what activities to pursue to impress admissions committees. And by the time they arrive, they have mental health challenges in large numbers, sadly, and they lack the ability to step back and think for themselves about what is worth studying and pursuing and worth caring about. So I think we would be doing a service not only to bringing about a more democratic society, but also to making education, higher education, truer to its appropriate mission and purpose by relieving higher education of this role of, of being the sorting machine for an intensely competitive meritocratic society with a steep hierarchy of honor and esteem in terms of the work people do and the rewards they get for it. Mm. Well, I think virtually no one will disagree that we should be honoring work and bestowing esteem on honest, productive, valuable work. We need electricians and plumbers, and we want electricians and plumbers to feel good about their jobs, and we want them as trained as they can be. And insofar as that training increases in its rigor as technology increases, we just want the, the path to, to excellence to be open there as well. But it's, it's hard to see how we get out of this sorting mechanism with respect to you know, elite performance, you know, on all fronts. I mean, again, the, the NBA is kind of a cartoon example, but it does, it finds its way into any notion of, of higher education as well. So it's like, if you're going to go to music school to become a concert violinist, and, you know, you only have four years in, the, in that school, so presumably you already know how to play the violin, and if it's going to be the best music school on earth, well, it's only going to admit those people who really already know how to play the, the violin to a very high level. Otherwise, they wouldn't even think of applying, right? So it's going to have a very high rejection rate. When you find your way into that school, you're going to be surrounded by people who are great musicians already. And on some level, how could it be otherwise? And then the question is, does that logic extend to more or less every topic we care about? Does it extend to philosophy and pure pleasures of the mind? I mean, if I'm going to go to the philosophy program at Harvard, do I want to be surrounded by people who are already among the most erudite and thoughtful people in that domain? Or do I want more of a random sampling of humanity that just happened to you know, be interested in philosophy? It's hard to see how we get away from wanting the former. And part of this speaks to the experience of being in college and the experience of you know, each person becoming the best they can be at what, what interests them. 
we want to support that. But part of it also speaks to this, this seemingly crass sorting mechanism component of just social signaling, where when I find out that a person went to Harvard, I believe I know something about them because Harvard has done the work of only accepting people at a certain standard of you know, intelligence and you know, aptitude for what they focused on and willingness to, to make an effort, right? So if, if I'm hiring somebody, right, and they have Harvard on their CV as opposed to a community college, well, that means something. And, and if we decide to rejigger our educational system such that it means less and less, where I, I can now no longer assume that they have a you know, higher than average IQ because they went to Harvard, say, well, then couldn't we just land in some perverse place where you know, social signals have broken down such that employers just unabashedly require that people take IQ tests before they even apply for the job, right? I mean, Google could just say, yeah, the front door now looks like getting into Mensa, as embarrassing as that sounds, because we stripped away the SAT and all these other mechanisms by which the, the social signaling component of college made any sense at all in decades past, and now I have no idea who you are if you went to Harvard. Maybe you could focus first on just how you think people should get into Harvard and therefore what should follow from that. Well, I think it's, you asked uh, an important question just now, Sam, when you were speaking about the violinist. You asked, can't we extend that logic to society and social roles generally? I think it's worth considering whether the examples that we've been discussing with regard to merit, the self-evident appropriateness of merit, how generalizable these examples are, or whether these are special cases. Consider the examples that we've been discussing, Sam. J.K. Rowling, a writer, a virtuoso violinist, a great basketball player, or an outstanding philosopher. Now, whether people should be admitted to opportunities to cultivate their musical or creative or athletic gifts, I think the answer to that is, is yes, those gifts should be cultivated in the best possible way. But that's quite a far cry. And it, it, it is true that many defenders of a market meritocracy, of, of uh, defending the, in general, the rewards that the market bestows on the successful in the economy and society, there is a tendency to cite examples such as these as if they are illustrative and generalizable. But the real question is, looking at our economy and society more broadly, the hedge fund manager who makes 800 times what a nurse makes or a high school teacher, would we really say that that is in any way connected to the superior natural or intellectual gifts of the hedge fund manager over the um, nurse or the high school teacher, much less whether it has anything to do with a vastly superior contribution to the common good, a subject we were talking about before. And I would say no. I think it would be far-fetched to think that those who succeed in material terms in our society are virtuosos at anything other than making money. And so, but in any case, I could be wrong about that. I think that question should be right at the heart of our public debate. I don't think we should take for granted that there's any reason to think that the rich are rich because they are more deserving than the poor or more excellent than the poor in some generalized way, cognitive or otherwise. But I would also make a, a, a more practical observation when you speak, Sam, about don't we want to preserve the signaling mechanism. It's really the best and the brightest question. 
you know, the best and the brightest was this book written by David Halberstam mm. about how the best credential, most brilliant, most highly regarded people from Ivy League places were recruited to the Kennedy administration. And so impressive were they that Lyndon Johnson, then John F. Kennedy's vice president, went to Sam Rayburn, his mentor from Texas, then Speaker of the House, and told Rayburn about what a dazzling array of brilliant people Kennedy had assembled from the Ivy League and other places, and from Ford, thinking of McNamara, people who knew about systems analysis, experts of all kinds. And Sam Rayburn said, well, Lyndon, I think they, they might be all as smart as you say they are, but I'd feel a lot better if, if a few of them had run for sheriff once. Mm. Right. And Halberstam's point, of course, is that, this, that the best and the brightest were the ones who led us into the folly of the Vietnam War. And I think there is a larger lesson here about the signaling function of, of these institutions. They were the best and the brightest in terms of technocratic expertise, but not in terms of the practical judgment. Aristotle called it phronesis or the civic virtue, the, uh, the ability to size up a situation, to draw on historically relevant comparisons to, to make practical judgments in the here and now, to identify with their fellow citizens, less lustrous, less credentialed than they. They weren't very strong on those traits, and they had actually very poor judgment, and led us to one of the great follies in recent American history. Fast forward to the decision in the 1990s and early 2000s, bipartisan decisions, Democratic presidents, Republican members of Congress deciding to deregulate the financial industry in the late 90s, deciding not to regulate derivatives and other fancy financial instruments. The financial crisis of 2008 comes. The same people who had helped deregulate the financial industry are brought back by President Obama to advise on how to handle the bailout. And uh, sure enough, the bailout turns out to uh, not to hold accountable those responsible for the crisis, does little to help those who lost their homes, and generates deep anger and resentment that leads on the right to the Tea Party movement in Trump, to the left, on the left to the Occupy movement and Bernie Sanders. So in a way, the best and the brightest now, the second time around, enacted policies, not lethal folly like the Vietnam War, but financial policies and economic policies that deepened the divide between winners and losers and paved the way to Trump. So I think that the best and the brightest haven't done all that well at governing in recent decades. And I would just say one other thing, Sam, because you're probably wondering, well, what am I suggesting instead? What I really think we need is instead of building a political project of trying to perfect the meritocracy and equip a handful of people, at least for meritocratic competition, instead, we should diffuse democratic learning broadly throughout the society. There's no reason why liberal arts learning, moral and civic education, should be sequestered in the citadel of higher education. Mm. And then we hold a tournament to try to determine who will gain access to the citadel. I think that we should get back to a kind of broad democratic equality of condition where we focus on creating public spaces in common places of shared democratic citizenship within civil society, class-mixing institutions where people from different walks of life encounter one another, and where everyone, not just those with high SAT scores, gain access to the, to the moral and civic learning and deliberation that a democratic society at its best offers and makes available to everyone. Hmm. Well, Michael, it's, it's a fascinating topic, and it, it also has the added benefit of being perhaps the, the most important topic of our time. 
I think we've only scratched the surface, and I know you have to to go because you're at Harvard surrounded by merit-seeking drones, and (laughs) I feel your pain. But thank you for taking the time, and uh, I think we'll have a further discussion about how to incentivize what you and I seem to agree really must be incentivized at this point. I mean, something like, you know, wisdom and a commitment to the common good, which is it's not even a phrase that it, there's something so archaic about the phrase, given that yeah. you, you never hear it come from anyone in our society, and yet it's uh, quite helpfully in the subtitle of your book, which I highly recommend people read. So uh, again, Michael, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Sam. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much.